This evening's session, looking at atypical working restraints, is very much a comparative exercise, looking at the perspective of atypical workers, atypical relationships, concepts such as independent contractors, partnerships, LLPs, and looking at that field rather than employment relationships from the point of view of restraints, uh, seeking to restrain competitive activity in terms of uh, employment solicitation uh, of employees, uh, competitive activities in terms of work, and also confidential information. And the comparative, of course, is vitally important. We learn so much from looking across. Those of you in the UK will have seen today in the Financial Times that the UK government is uh, resurrecting an idea, which they articulated a few years ago, of taking a leaf out of California's book and looking at limiting post-termination restrictions in employment contracts in the tech field. So we learn so much by looking across and seeing the way that these issues are approached in different jurisdictions. And for that purpose, I'm very pleased tonight to have three guests on the panel uh, with me, David Reed from Littleton Chambers. I have David Fisher from CM Murray. Uh, I'm very pleased also to have uh, Miriam Lefrancois, who is in Montreal in Canada. She's with McCarthy Trichol. We're also very pleased to have Michael uh, Avila with us today, uh, who many of you know from Fisher Phillips in Philadelphia. So it's a pleasure to have everyone here this evening. As I've indicated, um, we're talking about, to use a generic term, contractual relationships of various forms, gig workers, the genuinely self-employed, professional relationships, partnerships or LLP relationships, business sale relationships, share or business sale or franchise relationships. That wider spectrum of commercial relationships beyond the employment relationship. And looking at the position after the end of that contractual relationship and the capacity to impose restrictions, protecting business interests or confidential information as a subset of that after the end of that relationship. And, and I suppose the first question really to say is, is there a difference of approach in the legal jurisdiction that you are in to those types of relationships? Perhaps, I can start from my own perspective on home turf with David and your thoughts about that. So the first thing really to bear in mind in the UK is that in whatever context you're looking at post-termination restraints, you've still got to apply the same sort of basic principles. So first of all, is there a legitimate business interest that it's appropriate to protect? That's the first thing. And secondly, is the protection that you're seeking no more than is reasonable having regard to the interests of the parties and the public interest. So those are always the underlying principles to look at in any situation. But there is a big a big spectrum, essentially, between so at the one end, the employment relationship, where the courts will uh, typically be a lot tighter when it comes to the enforcement of restrictions, um, and at the other end, the types of restrictions that will be permitted in things such as business sale agreements and share sale agreements. I think a good indication of this was given by the court in the Cavendish and L. Macdessie case, where it said that you've got a lot more freedom of contract between a buyer and a seller than you would have in an employment relationship, because it's in the public interest that the seller ought to be able to get a high price for what he has to sell, and goodwill wouldn't really be saleable if the seller of a business was prevented from entering into 
adequate governance against competition. So there's, there's certainly a much greater interest in allowing restrictive covenants in, in, in that sort of context than there generally is in the employment relationship. Still needs to be borne in mind, though, that you know, even in the business context, if a covenant goes further than is reasonably necessary to protect a legitimate interest, it's still going to be void and, and unenforceable. Another principle that comes in is the fact that the court should be really quite slow to strike down clauses that parties freely negotiated where they have equal bargaining power. So again, on the one hand, at the one end of the spectrum, you've got an employment relationship where very often, of course, an employee is given standard terms of employment or they're expected to enter into particular restrictive covenants. And that's the only basis on which the employer will engage them. So there's perhaps very little bargaining power for the employee in that situation. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got a situation where the parties to a sort of commercial agreement have a lot more equality when it comes to their bargaining power. And in that type of situation, the courts are more likely to, uh, to allow the parties' agreement to, to stand. Uh, I entirely agree that the focus often is on the reasonableness between the parties and their respective negotiating positions. But how, how focused can that be? Because appreciating the employment contract, it's very obvious that the, there's an imbalance of power, but you can have in a partnership agreement, um, people who are at the very bottom end of the partnership relationship, yeah. where their negotiating power might be pretty feeble when it comes to terms. So do the courts take a different approach with that level of granularity? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the partnerships is an interesting one, particularly because in a, in a, in a true partnership context, so if we're, if we're talking about true partners, equity partners in a traditional partnership, as opposed perhaps to salaried partners who, who would probably be regarded more as an employee than a partner. Certainly traditionally, in a perhaps a smaller equity traditional partnership, it would be thought that there is a lot more sort of bargaining power amongst the partners to agree on the terms of, of any restraints. And that's certainly how it's been looked at by the courts uh, over the years. And it's very, very long time, really, since we've had any significant case in the courts that relates to partnerships. We're going back you know, 30 odd years, really, to any major decision around restrictions on, on partners uh, for a number of reasons. It does raise a big question as to how the courts these days would perhaps look at these relationships, especially where we're dealing with much, much larger firms than used to be the case and certainly where we're dealing with limited liability partnerships as well so your, your point is a very good one if you're coming into if you're joining a firm that's a you know major law firm as a fairly junior partner so not someone who would be regarded as an employee but still a you know, self-employed member of an LP your position might not look very different to that of an employee in many respects when it comes to the um, restrictive covenants because you've probably got very little option, really. I mean, the, the terms of the agreement are what they are. If there are several hundred partners already, those are the terms that you're going to have to sign up to. And, and they could be, you know, some very restrictive terms when it comes to restricted covenants. So there is this sort of big issue around whether quite far-reaching restrictions, those that would be far more onerous than you would normally impose on an employee, would be enforceable in that situation. I certainly see some very onerous restraints in LP agreements, ones that you would certainly think wouldn't be enforceable if they were being imposed on, a, uh, on an ordinary employee, no matter how sort of senior they were. And, you know, for instance, it's still quite common to see very broad non-compete restrictions in LLP and partnership agreements, you know, often lasting several years, 
which might prevent say, you know, a partner in a, in, a, in a city firm from working in another city firm for, from a good period of time. The sort of thing that you, if you looked at from an employment perspective, you would probably wouldn't really hesitate to say, well, that's, you're really gonna to struggle to enforce that. Whereas in the partnership context, there's still potentially a lot more leeway but I think it would be it would be good if we could get one of these cases to the court and actually have some sort of you know judicial authority on it of course the problem is that most firms don't really want to be litigating these sorts of things most individuals don't want to be going to battle with major law firms to um, to, you know, to try these things out and very often in any event they're dealt with under arbitration clauses and the general public never really gets to see what you know what's decided well thank you can I, can I throw that over to um Marianne in in, in Montreal um, how, how, from your perspective, are post-termination, I mean, in a generic sense, contractual relationship clauses enforced? Is there a difference of approach between these types of atypical relationships and employment relationships? So, first of all, well, thank you for the question, David. And first of all, we need to distinguish between the, the type of restrictive covenant, I believe, because the approach will be different. So are we talking about a non-competition provision or a non-solicitation provision or a confidentiality provision, right? And confidentiality is never a problem, uh, whatever the relationship is. If the, if the provision is well-drafted, uh, that, that is not a concern. But having said that, then we have the non-solicitation provision. Then solicitation of clients, then solicitation of employees or, you know, uh, subcontractors or consultants. Um, Non-solicitation are quite easy to enforce, um, notwithstanding the type of relationship we are talking about. Um, of course, the uh, length of time or duration has to be reasonable. That's mainly what we'll be looking at. And the drafting has to be clear as well. Uh, we have to be very, very cautious with potential clients because potential clients is where we have this great area where we see a lot of fighting, a lot of, of, of contentious arguments. So, so potential is, is, is not has a potential of success, but not certainly not a certainty of success. Now, clients, if, if you can demonstrate that the person knew that, you know, it was a client, was it a client at the time of, you know, the relationship, the termination of the relationship. So all of that will be looked at, notwithstanding the type of relationship. But now, Non-competition provision is another story. So non-competition provision in an employment context is obviously very strict and difficult to enforce. So a bit like what David was, uh, was saying before, uh, so we'll look at the scope of the provision. So in an employment context, it has to be extremely limited to only what's necessary to protect the legitimate interest uh, of the contracting parties. So, you know, you have to prove a legitimate interest. You have to prove that each of the criterion is reasonable. So duration, territory, the nature of prohibited activity, all of that has to be extremely reasonable and fair so that the judge will want maybe to enforce it. So that's the employment context. Now, if we go outside the employment context, uh, you were mentioning, uh, David, before the, the gig workers. Um, so, so all of these workers, self-employed workers, 
uh, they will be mostly treated like employees for that purpose. That's what we are seeing and the tendency is just growing. So I think we can assume that if we have a self-employed, basically the court will look at you know, what they consider is fair. It's a lot of fairness assessment, I find. And so, you know, is it fair to, to have this one, one man person, you know, working, you know, as a consultant, uh, not be able to work for, I don't know how long after the contract has ended. Uh, we'll look at the duration. If the contract lasted for three months and we have an uncompete lasting for one year, Obviously, that's not going to work either. And then I always warn, um, you know, my clients, you know, we have to be careful with using templates um, and not necessarily adapting uh, the duration, the territory uh, to, you know, the situation. Because if we are looking at atypical workers, usually we have defined term contracts, we have project-based contracts with a limited duration, unlike an employment agreement, which is indefinite. So it becomes a bit harder to justify a very long restrictive covenant in a case like that. So, you know, so, so they will look at it from a fairness standpoint. So that's for the um, self-employed gig worker. Uh, now, if we look at a pure commercial agreement, business to business, with another co company uh, or you know someone that that is at arm's length then in a case like that it would be looked at from a commercial standpoint and then it is easier to get it enforced although the court will still look at the same criteria duration territory definition of restricted activities uh, it's just that you have a bit more uh, possibility. So the, the, the maximum duration, for example, would go from two years, which is the ultimate maximum duration for an employee on a non-compete, uh, can go up to five years in a purely commercial context. Of course, if the consideration, if there was, you know, a sale of business, a transaction of some sort where the person did receive consideration in exchange for signing that provision, then it will likely be enforced. Can I just ask, obviously, you, you're, um, the other speakers on this call are coming from a common law tradition, and you're not coming from a common law tradition. And we as lawyers are soothsayers, we are predictors of outcomes. And on a common law tradition, we use as our touchstone decided cases. Would there, is there a body of material that enables you to form that? Or is it essentially more of an uncertain outcome? What would be perceived to be fair? Or would you be able to be a pretty clear as, as able to predict the likely outcome in any set of circumstances? It is pretty clear. Usually when we read the provision, we look at the set of circumstances because we will always look at circumstances. You know, how did the relationship end? you know, all sorts of things that will be considered. Um, so, so yes, we can predict mostly what's going to happen, although sometimes we have surprises in court. We always do. Thank, thank you. Can I, can I pass over to, um, to Mike and um, invite your perspective on it um, in Philadelphia? Sure. And, and so the experience in the U.S. Uh, is 
uh, frankly, an amalgamation of a lot of the points that David and Marianne just made. Um, and, and it varies uh, from state to state. So restrictive covenant law in the US uh, is largely governed at a state level as opposed to a federal level. So we, we get um, nuances and, and a fairly broad spread of outcomes, particularly as it relates to em employment restrictive covenants, restri restrictive covenants, especially non-competes executed uh, in connection with an employment arrangement. Uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll speak to the issue of, of a full non-compete as opposed to lesser restrictions like a non-solicit or confidentiality agreement, because I think it, it offers the greatest variation of what is other, otherwise a great issue uh, in the U.S., uh, because it is the, sort of the greatest of the restrictions we generally see. And in the U.S., you can expect, uh, as David said in his experience in the U.K., an initial analysis of enforceability of the covenant, irrespective of whether we're talking about an employee or a partner uh, or in the sale of business context, is it, is it enforceable? And one of the keystones of that analysis is, is there a legitimate underlying business interest in the, in the restrictions being sought? And coupling that with the relief that's generally being requested, which in the US is an injunction, right? So normally when we go to enforce these agreements in the US, uh, damages are often a secondary consideration or even a non-consideration in many cases because we're trying to avoid the imposition of damages. We're trying to avoid the existence of harm by obtaining injunctive relief. And the key, the key analysis to an injunctive relief uh, claim in these cases is, at least for context of examining the spread between employees and, and non-traditional uh, relationships, is um, the balancing of the equities. Right, so sort of similar to what Marianne was describing, it's sort of sort of a fairness analysis, and so as we look at these, what constitutes a legitimate business interest, and what constitutes a balance of equities such that enforcement uh, or the issuance of an injunction is advisable, starts to range. So with employees, uh, low-level employees, you may not have that legitimate business interest, and the balance of equities may tip in favor of the employee because the likelihood of harm to the employer is quite low. As we move outside of that context into gig employee relationships, for example, I think similar to Marianne's point, you're going to see a very similar outcome in the US. And then uh, on the far end of that spectrum is the sale of business, where uh, if you sell your business or you depart from a partnership that built a business, uh, you could expect a, a much harsher look at your departure in the eyes of the court because uh, there's, a, there's a substantial legitimate business interest in protecting the goodwill of the company, either that, the goodwill that was purchased in the sale or that was developed between partners. Um, and, and the balance of the equities often could be expected to be viewed as, well, frankly, this is an arm's length transaction, or this is a peer-to-peer -peer negotiation as opposed to uh, an employee negotiating with, with a, a would-be employer. Uh, and in that respect, equities don't necessarily play as much of an advantage to the departing employee or the departing partner. Um, I will say this, though. We, we, David, you discussed a bit in context of enforcing partnership agreements in the context of uh, the legal field. And in the U.S., I can tell you that uh, because lawyers make the law, generally non-competes among lawyers are not enforceable here in the States. Uh, it's not a, it's not a, a black and white but it's it's darn close. So 
let's praise the similarities rather than focus on the differences because uh, everyone's recognizing the importance of the characterization of the relationship i think and the reasonableness between the parties of that particular relationship and I do wonder, and I'd be interested for people's perspective on this, I'm going to start with you, Mike, to forewarn you, which is this, which is that if you, if you go back to the origins of um, the doctrine of restraint of trade, what, what sort of drives the, um, the philosophy, there was always originally an imperative that one actually encouraged the idea that a free market thrived on having people being able to pursue their legitimate interests, yet the classification of the relationship for all of you seems to suggest that that really is a bit of a secondary consideration these days and that the nature of the relationship is the most important thing that driving that would that be a fair observation mike you know it, it's 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 an interesting observation I, I tend to think that courts are still uh very inclined to review the precise restraints on trade that a particular restrictive covenant might impose, and, and whether that um, whether that militates in favor of, of of not enforcing the covenant or not issuing an injunction and let, allowing the covenant to go forward in, in, in litigation on damages only, and I, we see but we see different outcomes both in different contexts and different relationships, but also among different states. So if we were if we were addressing this issue in the state of California, uh, the conclusion would be in many, many instances, almost entirely, except outside of the sale of business context, that any restraint on trade is unlawful. And therefore these covenants, whether with employees or uh, contractors, as long as you're talking about a full non-compete again, um, or, or even in many respects in California, non-solicitation agreements are, are, are simply unlawful because they impose uh, an an imposition on an individual's ability to engage in a chosen trade. And we've seen that in the context of, um, in different contexts outside of uh, California, states like Pennsylvania, where, where I practice, uh, where the analysis is different. And I think courts will take the issue up, but they take it up almost in the abstract, right? It's not a direct uh, restraint on trade analysis. Rather, restraint on trade plays uh, one factor in um, balancing you know, the harm with respect to whether an injunction should issue. Uh, I, I don't know that we've seen a wholesale departure from the concept, but, but I agree. Maybe I agree actually, you know, sort of on reflection that it has taken sort of a, a back seat to the other factors a court looks at when they decide whether to enforce a covenant. Miriam, if I can sort of move that on to you and ask this, I mean, I sometimes muse on this that, and I'm interested in the, in the US, the position about lawyers, which are, um, and the absence of restrictions there. But, but is it the case, say, in, in Montreal, that the classification of the type of relationship, and I don't just mean employment relationships, but the classification of the relationship in the field that it's in might make a difference. So, for example, if I was looking today at something that restricted the ability of a researcher in COVID from moving from one business to another, I might have a different perspective on the public interest in restraining that person from exercising their skills than I would have done 18 months ago. Does that have any impact in the way that um, your courts approach matters? 
Well, I'm not sure about the COVID searcher, frankly, David. Uh, normally, they would look at the business interest and not necessarily the public interest for that. But I think that is definitely an argument that you know could be extremely interesting. I don't know what would be the outcome of it on public interest. Um, having said that, it is still important, the qualification of the relationship, uh, mostly in the province of Quebec, because we have a specific provision in our civil code stating that if it's an employment relationship, the provision is null and void if the employee was terminated without cause. So it's gonna be super important to know whether the person was an employee or not, and if that provision would apply or not, because if the, well, of course, if the person resigned or you know left voluntarily, it's not an issue. But if the person was terminated without cause, then it becomes an issue to qualify if you know it's an employment relationship or not. And I would say that still they would they would look at it to to determine if it's you know a commercial relationship. Or, or more something that, that you know, with the disadvantage that one party was disadvantaged, disadvantaged towards the other. So they would look at it, but, you know, besides from the employment relationship, all the other relationships, I think, you know, it's kind of, I, I don't think it would have much impact on the analysis at the end of the day, you know, between a partnership or between a, you know, purely commercial agreement. I don't think that would make a difference. Right. So it's so that so a very focused battleground is that gig worker, um, true employee debate that you that we've got in all of our jurisdictions. That that's very much yeah. a battleground, is it, in in the context of these types of restrictions? Absolutely. David, you know, that that raises an interesting divergence, I think, between uh, our uh, our friends to the north here in North America. And that is in the in the U.S., the public interest uh, actually weighs substantially in the decision uh, as to whether an injunction should issue to enforce a restrictive covenant. The public interest is one of the factors along with a balancing of the equities, the likelihood of success on the underlying claims and the existence of potential or actual irreparable harm. And in that respect, professions can play a role in the impact of the public interest uh, analysis. So, research physicians or physicians in a practice, for example, might be a good example here where you could have a, a physician practice partnership. And if we take their occupation out of the, out of context, take, take the medicine out and just look at the fact that it's structured as a, as a partnership, we might say that the enforcement of non-compete may be easier than in a pure employment relationship. But then we take a look at what this practice actually does. And so, for example, if you are uh, in a rural area in the U.S. where access to uh, certain types of medicine, we'll just say oncology, for example, is somewhat limited, a court could take the, uh, the position that enforcing uh, when, when, a, when a, an oncology partner leaves to start a practice down the street, that the public interest militates in favor of allowing free access to this specific type of medicine that isn't freely available in that region. And therefore, although there may be damages to pursue, the court won't enforce the non-compete injunctively by stopping the, the doctor from practicing. That's very interesting. And I, I'm aware of there are some old cases in the UK where 
the sort of medical researcher type thing I, I recollect in the past has had a feature. But David, um, is there anything like that in our approach to um, enforcing these types of governance in an injunctive way of a, a sort of super trumping factor of the um, public mm. interest? Yeah, I mean, I sort of see it more that, as we said, I mean, you, you know, you, you start out with the underlying principle that it's in the public interest for there to be uh, free trade, shall we say, no restraint on trade. But beyond that point, certainly in my experience, it, it then tends to focus more on, is there a legitimate interest to protect? And, and, and how do the parties sort of go about that? It's still got to be obviously reasonable having regard to the parties and the public interest generally, but less less of an issue then around, well, a bit more in the public interest for, for people to be able to do this particular type of work or move between different companies rather than looking at the actual the interests of the the employer who the employee is looking to move from if it's an employment uh, an employment situation so more, more an examination really of what is it that the employer is trying to protect in the way of its confidential information or its customer connections its supply chain its workforce and, and so on ra rather than you know, perhaps wider issues around sort of public policy in the particular uh, industry or, or sector in which someone's operating. And is that my experience, through these atypical type relationships like partnership, commercial mm. sale, business sale, share sale? Yeah, I mean, it seems a lot more sort of commercial in those respects. And, and really, I think that probably to a lot of people's surprise, I think, and particularly if you're, you know, people who, who practice employment law, but don't really deal in other areas so much. Maybe perhaps the exception of looking at you know sort of share agreements and so on are often quite surprised at, at how restrictive the restrictions can be. I think particularly in the partnership um, context because it is a very different sort of relationship, and the courts have shown a sort of far greater tendency to to say there's a you know greater quality of bargaining power and that the that the parties have, you know have decided to protect the interests of one party, not necessarily the employer, but you know, a firm, shall we say, or a company if it's a franchising agreement or the vendor of a business and look at the sort of commercial realities of that and realize that you know, there is a need to have protection of interests for the good of, you know, for the good of business, basically. Of course, you know, there are parties that have the have the ability to impose restrictions and, and, and choose not to do so. So you know, coming back to the point about law firms, there are a lot of law firms uh, that could but don't uh, have restrictive governments in their in their LP or partnership agreements um, for whatever reason. So you know, not everyone chooses to do that, even where they've got the freedom to, to do so. Yes, I, I mean, my understanding of the rationale, um, Mike, of the US um, view on legal restrictions and limiting, even in the context of legal partnerships, restricting um, uh, having post-termination restraints in that field. My understanding had always been that it was the, the view that the client should have the ultimate freedom to make choices about the lawyer of their choice. And in all of these atypical relationships, any, talk, any sort of restriction inevitably restricts the choices of non-parties to the commercial relationship, doesn't it? It does, yeah, particularly in the practice of law, but we also see it in the US in financial services where uh, brokerage rep registered representatives uh, are often um, uh, outside the ambit of a, of a non-compete. They can't be subjected to non-competes because the, the, the logic is that the, the consumer, the public investor, or the, this, this, the consumer of legal, uh, legal advice 
should have free access to the full pool of available resources in that uh, sector. Uh, um, Marianne, what's the position with lawyers and other specific types of, um, uh, of groups about restrictions of this nature, say in partnership deeds or corporate entities on restrictions? Is there a special approach to them in, in, in Montreal? Yeah, and I and I and I think it's fair to say in the, in Canada in general is the same. So basically, there is a right constitutional right to have the lawyer of your choice. So you cannot prevent any client from engaging or hiring the lawyer that he or she wants. So at the end of the day, that non-competition would be just completely invalid. So we don't have it. There is no non-competition provisions among you know, lawyers like myself. Um, you do have in partnership agreements, however, non-solicitation provisions. So you would have that. Um, so non-solicitation of employees, uh, mostly, uh, not necessarily of clients, because again, uh, the clients, the client is, is king, can choose, you know, whomever he wants as a lawyer. And so, so, so that's very important. And then I'm going to just use that to, 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 to talk more broadly. Uh, actually, in the case law, we see a very, very general uh, tendency to consider that clients in general have the right to do business with whomever they want. So seeking an injunction uh, to prevent a client from hiring uh, the, the, the person of its choice, and I use person on purpose so that it's broader, uh, it will generally not be enforced. So we saw that for, you know, uh, drug stores. We saw that for all sorts of areas that, you know, marketing clients could just decide and, and the judge won't tell a client who's a third party to that agreement, right? The client is not part of that non-compete agreement. And so the, the third party here, like I think you mentioned that before, David, you know, you know, the, the judge will not want to tell the client, sorry, you cannot use, you know, David, uh, because David has an uncompete with Miriam, you know, so that's not going to be enforced. So that's why it's very important when we draft those agreements, if they are important, uh, to either put liquidated damages clauses, you know, so that there is a consequence for breaching. So you, you, you have the provision, but then if you assume that maybe the judge won't enforce it because the client can do whatever he wants, at the end of the day, what's going to be the consequence, especially with confidential information, it's very difficult to prove damages, very difficult. Um, you know, non-compete, sometimes it's difficult as well to prove the damages. We all, we all know that, how difficult it is. And the judges prefer to enforce damages provisions than giving injunction you know, because then it's only monetary, but you're not uh, preventing the person from, you know, earning a livelihood. So that is something to consider more and more. That would always be my, my advice. I, I'm interested by your reference to liquidated damages clause. I don't know what the position is in Montreal, but in the UK, you wouldn't be able to get an effective liquidated damages clause unless you could genuinely say it was a genuine pre-estimate of your loss. And that's a very difficult thing to say when at the same time as you're trying to get an injunction, you're saying damages are D 
difficult to quantify and hard to quantify. And at the same time, you're also saying, oh, we know that here is a liquidated damages clause. We did think we could. Do you have the same problem or are liquidated damages clause pretty typically enforced? So, well, they will be enforced, but of course it's difficult to, to have your cake and eat it too. So it's gonna be difficult to enforce both the damages and the injunction. So that's why, you know, of course there is a way to draft it and I don't wanna enter into the details. There is a way to draft it, but it's not perfect. So it's really a matter of, of choice. What I find in practice is that when there is an amount of money in the contract stating if you breach, it's gonna cost you this, it has more of a dissuasive mm -hmm. uh, effect. And I just find that, I don't know why, but whenever I put a big amount in the contract, reasonable, reasonably big, um, I didn't have any problem with the contract. Nobody called me to say that was a breach. So, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just luck or maybe it's just that when people know the consequence and there is a clear consequence, they are more careful. David, As you can see, I'm a big fan of having your cake and eating it. Um, <laughs> so um, that's very interesting. Can, can I um, take the conversation slightly different direction? Uh, because I want, because obviously we're looking cross border and I wanted to pose a, a question for all of you really to see the answer to it. Uh, and I suppose partnerships provide a useful context for this because we might have a partnership where there are members of the partnership in different jurisdictions around the world. And I want to create an agreement that binds everyone. So I'm going to choose a particular legal systems, laws and rules. But I'm going to have the problem that I may want to enforce those in another jurisdiction. So I'm interested in the approach of your jurisdiction to enforcing post-termination restrictions which have been specified under the law of another jurisdiction. So, for example, Marianne, um, you're faced with a contract that's been drafted in the United States, has selected the law, let's say, of Delaware, and has included restrictions in relation to the law of Delaware, but someone's trying to enforce it before the, the court in, in Montreal. What, what, what would be the approach there to, to dealing with that? So the um, issue or the challenge that, you know, the, let's say that the person trying to have the Delaware law apply will face is that if it's a matter of what the, we call public policy, uh, then the judge will apply the, the local law uh, because you can't, you know, you know, go against public policy and, you know, for restrictive covenants, especially non-competition provisions, uh, there is a, a, you know, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say that it's considered, certainly in the employment context it is, public policy, but even, you know, if we look at other contexts, it is freedom of trade, and so the judges would consider that, you know, we have to look at it also from the local law angle before enforcing it. Uh, and anyways, you know, making an evidence of Delaware law wouldn't be so easy. It's, there is an entire process if you want to apply a foreign legal uh, system. Uh, so, so it's not. It, it's really not. Um, I, I wouldn't give it a, a, a big chance of success. Uh, you know, you need to have an expert coming. Uh, you know, testifying about what the Delaware law would be. 
and then the judge would consider it and then you know we would look at okay but is it against our public policy here uh, if it's a citizen someone who lives here so yeah that would be the debate uh, and mike imagine that um david's drafted a commercial agreement in the uk that specifies english law as the applicable law and someone's trying to enforce it in the courts in philadelphia uh, what would be the approach of the american courts to that well, there's a there's a similar in theory a, th a similar analysis on choice of law the the preference there's a strong preference to enforcing choice of law in a contract uh, here in the U.S., it, it, the analysis is similar to what Marianne just described, but I think the outcome is going to be quite different, which is there's going to be a tendency towards enforcing the choice of law elected by the parties, particularly in a commercial contract negotiated at arm's length. Uh, as the folks in the U.K., will, David and David will know, uh, it's a very different dynamic when you're dealing with an employee, particularly an employee based in the U.K. or the EU, and you're trying to enforce U.S. law on them. Uh, but to your example, uh, I, it, it, I think the court would take it seriously, and I think the likely outcome is that, um, and frankly, the, the law in many states in the U.S. is going to be more employer favorable or more uh, company favorable than um, the rest of the world. And in that sense, judges have a different viewpoint to it, which is, all right, we're talking about a, an arm's length transaction, a commercial contract, the parties negotiated through co competent counsel, it's well drafted, they knew what they were getting themselves into. The restraints sought are a is certainly appropriate based on our own jurisprudence on what we would enforce if it were a US law contract. So the, there's not a ton of public interest uh, in, in declining to apply what the party's elected to proceed under. Now that analysis changes from state to state, however. So for instance, uh, if we are liquidating a partnership, there's a chance that in California, for example, the public interest uh, would militate against allowing the use of British law over California law because of the result. Uh, and that is a, a violation of uh, California section 16600, uh, which generally prohibits non-competes in most contexts. Um, so it, again, it, it becomes a state-by-state -state analysis here in the US, but I think you would have a greater likelihood of success in enforcing a foreign choice of law clause in Pennsylvania and, and, and in most states here. David, the, these Americans come over and take our legal work. So they've specified <laughs> an American legal set of rules and someone's trying to enforce it in the context of the UK. Um, differences of approach between employment and non-employment relationships and the general approach of the courts? Yeah, I mean, again, we've got the, you know, the idea of freedom of contract for one thing. So um, courts will look to apply the Primarily, the you know, law of the contract is chosen by the parties, and some lessons, as we've heard, question of getting in expert evidence to, uh, you know, to say what that is. I still believe that even even in a sort of commercial context, there's still an issue of sort of public policy in, in terms of how the, how the courts here would apply law if it was applying something that was very much contrary to public policy here, it would be resistant to uh, to doing so. But again, I mean, we're, we're looking at quite a, quite a different sort of set of circumstances, coming back to this point maybe before about, you know, classifying what we're looking at and uh, that there's likely to be much, much sort of broader 
range of options, shall we say, when we're dealing with something in a pure commercial context, if it were a you know, sale and purchase agreement compared with a with an employment agreement, where indeed there are in any event sort of specific regulations as to how the court might be able to deal with that. I think there are clearly some sort of similarities in the way that different jurisdictions would. Uh, yeah. Um, and obviously, we've got this um, area of uncertainty in the future in that mm. you're absolutely right. We in domestically in the UK have had the clarity of EU provisions about knowing yeah. that we'll deal with the particular applicable law and the ability of people to specify other legal rules to people who are domiciled in the UK as, in, as, as, as workers or employees. And um, I, I don't think anyone knows quite what the future holds after we've gone uh, rather alarmingly quite soon. <laughs> Next month, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, through the end of a transition period. Yeah. That's another area of uncertainty, I suppose, whether or not we will remain um, for the moment with applying a cohesive and consistent set of conflict issues in relation to applicable law and drawing a distinction between um, employment relationships and commercial bargains in applicable law um, in the next in the next few years. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I mean, it looks it, it looks like we could be looking particularly if you know these uh, proposals that you were mentioning earlier on that were in the FT today, uh, you know, come to something. We could be looking at quite a shakeup in the uh, in, in, in the area o overall. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. I mean, that's that, that's a very interesting topic, which um, um, Mike and Miriam won't be aware of this, but a few years ago there was a consultation paper put out by the government and it looked at um, the position as they viewed it in California and the perception that the lack of restrictions in California on employment relationships uh, in the tech sector had been a factor in fostering the growth of technology in California and thought that that was a reason to introduce rules restricting restrictions in other areas. And because um, I'm a sad person, I spent quite a bit of time looking at this question. And one of the interesting things I've seen in the States is that there's quite a lot of research in the States because of the fact you've got the very helpful comparative position that not all states have the same rules and approach. And there didn't seem to be much evidence to support the view that really it was fostering growth. And I'd be interested in what you think about this, Mike. The other view that I saw is that although California was an area where it was difficult because of California law to enforce, enforce traditional post-termination restrictions about competition. The evolving confidentiality law there meant that you could achieve pretty much the same aims by using confidentiality provisions. Well, I, I think it's difficult in California to achieve anything similar to the enforcement of a non-compete uh, because it is, it is just, very protective, at least with respect um, to the employment relationship and even to non-standard relationships. Uh, unless you're selling your goodwill to someone, you're probably going to be able to compete against them. I don't think, this is perhaps my speculation, I, I tend to think that the, um, the attractiveness for tech sector executives and, and professionals in California has more to do with the climate and the scenery uh, than <laughs> The, the the prohibition on restrictions, and I, I really I, I mean that. Uh, but there, you know, there is something to be said for where we see cloisters of high concentration of successful tech companies, and jurisdictions where restrictions on restraints on trade are are 
harsher. So uh, the classic examples are California and Massachusetts on the other coast, uh, where the weather is not nearly as nice. Uh, but there is a, a real uh, concentrated tech sector and laws that are more favorable to uh, the individual than to businesses in terms of enforcement of covenants. Um, I, as I sit here, I, I can't tell you that they're, that, that they're related. I, I think that's a, a bridge too far, um, but it, it certainly is a coincidence at least. Well, um, Marianne, um, I think the last time we spoke, um, it was snowing in Montreal. Uh, I've just looked it up and I think you're about, are you about four degrees um, um, centigrade at the moment? So has, has, has the climate and the general ambience impacted upon your technological growth in Montreal? <laughs> well, people certainly, uh... You know, you have nothing else to do in the winter than just working. So I guess somehow it's positive, right? What else would you do? It's like freezing outside. It's actually snowing today since you're asking. It is snowing today. Um, yeah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be my answer. <laughs> well, maybe it's a topic for another occasion when we see the UK government proposals if they come through to come back to, to all of you and have a look and explore a bit more with Mike, the thought of whether what yeah. the real drivers are about that. And, and are, are there obviously yeah. legit, legitimate interest to say, why should I pay people to develop something mm -hmm. sets if they can immediately disappear off and develop them with a competitor? Well, while yeah, we're going that conversation, I'm going to, I'm going to translate uh, to Fahrenheit to figure out how cold it is in Montreal right now. But what I can say, we have a pretty developed, uh, you know, um, visual effect uh, video game industry in Montreal. And most of these companies do have non-competes and it does not seem to have been a problem about their growth. So, you know, I can see, you know, this is the, you know, the, the contrary to California. So we have these covenants, these companies have it and they're growing. So that's what I can say about that. Excellent. Well, um, I have an eye on the clock. Very happy to take text questions. I can't control your microphone from here, but we'd, we'd be delighted if any of you have got questions. Okay, the atypical relationship with Mr. Petter with EMC. That's a question from Michael Lampert. Uh, interesting share arrangements and other restrictions and um, David, have you any thoughts about that? Generally, I mean, you do, of course, get the situation fairly uh, frequently with uh, with executives where they've got an employment arrangement and they've also got some sort of share arrangements, be it uh, part of a share scheme, some sort of bonus arrangements and so on, which might have different uh, different types of restrictions in them. It can get very complicated. Obviously, the courts will want to look at the particular nature of the relationship, the particular restrictions that are in there. And coming back to this whole idea of the uh, the spectrum that we we're talking about before then i think if you've got a certainly where you've got a, an, an executive who's got that's a, a pretty significant interest in a business maybe they uh, hold a large number of shares in a business got substantial bonuses from that uh, from those sorts of arrangements courts are more likely to to look to uphold restrictions than they would for more junior individual with a perhaps just a, a small and fairly insignificant shareholding in the business 
Yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's going to depend very much on on the particular circumstances and uh, and what the individual does. But you certainly do see it that I mean, I've been involved in cases where this has been uh, an issue, as I'm sure you have too, David. That the uh, you know the, the whole shareholding in the business itself, you know, becomes a particular issue, and the restraints that the individual enters into through a particular agreement, that, you know, become very important. Very often, of course, in the UK, those are going to be going to be governed by uh, some foreign jurisdiction law. So very often, New York or Delaware, which is where we come back to this issue we were discussing just before about uh, enforceability, and, and very often, you know, those will be pretty long-term restraints as well. It'd be very common to see restrictions in those types of arrangements to prevent someone from going off and joining a competitor for several years um, post-leaving so um, and, and they do of course have an effect number of people that come for advice and say you know I'm looking to leave here are my restrictions and then you see this suite of restraints in some sort of share or bonus arrangement that prevent them going elsewhere for three years um, and it's sobering for the individual who's getting all excited about the business they're about to go and set up uh, next month or something like that. It's quite it, for the first time for some time in the UK this year uh, we had a case called Guest Services Worldwide Limited in David uh, Shelmadine, which was a case about restrictions in a shareholder agreement. And in the Court of Appeal, they did make the observation that there's a difference between shareholders who freely negotiated their shareholder relationship and an employee. So the, um, there's sort of um, the example of the EMC situation who gets conferred stock as part mm. of the remuneration package and is really having these clauses bolted on as, as something which isn't really negotiated, just fettered around the, the remuneration. Um, uh, we've got a question, a um, couple of other questions. Can I just take the first? Because I think in particular, um, I think we'll probably be very interested in Mike and Miriam's views on this. It's from Jeremy Coleman. Hi there, Jeremy, good to see you. And he's interested in the attitude in other jurisdictions to the team move. So the classic, you know, partners or indeed even employees, three or four people together being poached and moving um, in relation to that, and the use of recruitment consultants to bridge people out. What What's the approach in your courts to that type of event? Well, I think it depends in the U.S. on the uh, on the volume of the move. It can depend on the volume of the move. So, if if one particular partner in a partnership uh, picks up the lion's share of the employees underneath the partnership and moves them over to, to start a competitive business, uh, you, have a, you have an unfair competition action where the goal was not only to lift the, the human capital from uh, your, your current partnership, uh, which you, know, you came to be familiar with by virtue of, of working there, um, but also to, to cripple that partnership on the way out the door. So you're sort of securing two, two ends in one move uh, where you're, you're lifting talent uh, en masse, but also burying your former partnership uh, in the process. And that can have some pretty serious ramifications, uh, particularly uh, in terms of damages. And you know, if, you're a, if you're a partner and, you're lift, and you, have a, you have a non-recruit in your contract that disallows the recruitment of you know, employees in the partnership, it's going to be taken fairly seriously by the courts here in the U.S. Um, Maria? Yeah, we had actually a Supreme Court case about that uh, a few years back involving two financial institutions. Uh, one poached an entire team from the other. 
and so it will have it it will make a difference because then you are entering into the you know undergrounds of unfair competition and unfair competition is something you don't even need restrictive covenants mm -hmm. to argue so you know of course if you have restrictive covenants it's even better but you you can always argue unfair competition um and this is something that we see a lot uh, especially, you know, we saw, so we, we saw it in the financial sector. We, we saw it, you know, also in all sorts of, of, of service industries, uh, companies. Uh, so, so definitely it is something uh, to consider. Uh, I cannot really comment on the role of recruitment consultants at the end of the day. I think it's really the uh, employees or, uh, you know, co contractors who do the move that you know will be held responsible for that because the relationship and the contract is with them it's not with a third party recruitment consultant and um, i've got another question um which i'll move to so tal bear with me for a second because jeremy asked a quick supplemental he's cheeky like that and the quick mm -hmm. supplemental was that in the uk we see occasionally and people are a bit hesitant about them anti-team move clauses so clauses that say effectively you can't go and work for someone if you're working with people that you were working with in the employer in the last six months so they're, they're various forms but they're designed to try and create a specific restriction to stop the assembly of the team do you ever encounter any of those in your jurisdictions yes uh we, yes we do we, we see them in the context uh, um that you described, which is you can't accept employment if doing so would result in you being stationed within a, uh, a division in a company that presently houses a certain number of employees from your current employer, things of that nature. Uh, so it's, it's, it's not terribly common in the US, if only because uh, non-recruitment provisions are, are fairly ubiquitous and, and fairly enforceable. So it's not as necessary, but we do, we do see them. And Marianne in, in Montreal? No, no, not really. And I've got a question from uh, Tal Tyson. Hi, hi there, Tal. You asked, um, back to that question about classification, and you asked the interesting question that we often see in this jurisdiction, or may well be the case in, in other jurisdictions, um, people who are being classified as contractors or subcontractors or you know, independent contractors in very dubious um, or questionable circumstances where the contract phrases them as being something which they're not. And the, the question was, if there is a misclassification, would that immediately invalidate a, a non-complete clause on the basis that there was a sort of uh, unclean hands, equitable bar on it? Um, perhaps I could ask David, would, would that work in the UK if someone was presented as being not an employee, but actually employee, uh, would it invalidate a non-compete automatically? Well, certainly no expense of that being the case. I mean, obviously, the, the question of employment status is often a very, very difficult one in any event to, to get to the bottom of. I mean, it can certainly be said that using using one in a situation where someone is being held out as a as a worker rather than an employee, so as a you know, self-employed contractor or something of that nature, 
could you know, could be a factor in determining whether the person is actually to be regarded as an employee. So I'm sort of flipping the point around there rather than necessarily answering the question. But um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly seems to be a factor. I don't think it's right to say that you can't have restrictions on people who are not your employees. I mean, you, you could enter into restrictions with independent contractors. So there may be very good reasons to do that. But, you know, as said, it might be a factor in sort of tipping the balance if you're looking at someone's true employment status. From what you said, Marianne, it sounds as though it will be a very critical question in, in Montreal, that if someone was wrongly classified as not being an employee and they were an employee, if in fact they had grounds for saying their termination was without cause, they'd be immediately free from restraints. Yeah, that's correct. So if they are employees, that's relevant. Now, of course, maybe they resigned or maybe they ended the agreement, right? So, but I don't believe that the, the misqualification alone would not invalidate the clause. So that's the answer. Um, and I think, and I did not mention it before, but it's important to mention in Canada, there is no blue penciling. Huh? So the clause is either valid or it's not, but the judge will not redraft it for you. So that is important to know. You heard it here first. There are no blue pencils in Canada. Um, no. Mike. Um, only, only red pencils. Oh. Mike. I, 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 it's an interesting question because usually this issue, um, although you can see how it, it, it would come up, um, in, in context, one issue doesn't want to come up in, in, in the same context as the other. Because if... Uh, if a contractor, let's say a contractor is a non-compete and they leave and they go somewhere else, they may not want to argue that they were in fact an employee and misclassified because that may risk creating greater enforceability of the non-compete, which is their, their primary concern at that moment because they're being sued on it. Whereas on the other hand, if they are uh, a contractor who believes they've been misqualified and they want to take action, they're probably not in the posture where they're being sued on their non-compete, but rather they're still acting as a contractor or just dismissed without another job on the other end. And they want to take action. So they want to challenge the, they want to use the fact that they had that non-compete as uh, one of the many facets we would look at when deciding if someone was misclassified. So although they're related, you can see how in, in practice, the issue doesn't come up a lot. Thank you. Well, um, I think we've exhausted the supply of questions. Um, and so I, it only really uh, falls to me to thank everyone. So Marianne, th thank you very much for your contribution. Uh, Mark, I know you're very keen to get down to four seasons <laughs> uh, landscaping as quickly as you can. So thank you very much. And lots of votes to count down there. Uh, and, um, and David, uh, thank you very much. So um, um, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you all. Uh, it's been an equal pleasure speaking to everyone that's watching. I can see your names. I know many of you. It's been hopefully a helpful uh, session and I look forward to seeing you again in happier times than we presently have. Thank you very much. Thanks, David. Thank you, David. Thank you all. Thank you. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye. -bye,